Coming up on Stu Does America, we'll talk about the crackdown on science-based gender literature by speaking with an author of a book on science-based gender, Dr. Deborah So. And the Cuomo crime family continues to collapse like a neutron star as more information is revealed about the governor's dirty COVID deals. Congratulations, you've made it to Friday. Be sure to catch me over the weekend on my Instagram page, at Stu Does America. Be sure to follow me and click the link in my bio to find this show completely free wherever you want. Watch it, share it, rate and review. Five stars is the appropriate number of stars. And maybe a review, something quick, like, it's great, whatever, that'll do. Or help support the network that supports this show with your own subscription to Blaze TV. Head to blazetv.com slash stew and enter the promo code stew because that's how they know you like this stupid show and you'll save 10 bucks. Remember that time Joe Biden insulted conservatives? You know, one of the very few hundred times he's done that in the past couple months. Well, let's see how that criticism is holding up as we do the Texas Neanderthals. Stu does America. Welcome, Neanderthals, to the program. It's uh, great to have you here. You know, it's been interesting to watch the news coverage of my home state the past couple of weeks. Why? Well, we had a big announcement where Governor Abbott said that we were going to open up the state 100 percent and we were going to have no mask mandate and we're going to go all the way. People could do whatever they wanted. Remember those days? Yes. At one time in our society, people could just like open up businesses and let people in and they could eat where they wanted to inside or outside. In fact, given the opportunity, a lot of people chose outside. I don't know if that's going to be the case anymore now that everything's open inside and it's opening up around the country. At the time this was made, this was sort of broken into two different groups. You had the left saying this was going to be a complete and utter catastrophe. This was very dangerous sort of approach uh, considering the uh, ongoing pandemic. And then you had the right saying, well, let's wait a little while and we'll see. We'll see if these lockdowns work because we're going to be open 100 percent. I want to take you back to Joe Biden talking about the announcement from Governor Abbott. Message to Texas and Mississippi. Texas and Mississippi. Texas, I think it's a big mistake. Look, I hope everybody's realized by now these masks make a difference. We are on the cusp of being able to fundamentally change the nature of this disease because of the way in which we're able to get vaccines in people's arms. We've been able to move that all the way up to the end of May to have enough for every American to get every adult American to get a shot. And the last thing, the last thing we need is the Neanderthal thinking that in the meantime, everything's fine. Take off your mask. Forget it. It still matters. Still matters, everybody. Uh, That was kind of the pitch from Joe Biden. Neanderthal thinkers in Texas were loosening up these restrictions too fast. Governor uh, Gavin Newsom, who's in the middle of being recalled, uh, decided he wanted to try to please his base by tweeting the following. He said it's absolutely reckless. On that note, by the way, before we get into any more today, let me remind you, we have these mugs available now. Anyone else for governor? Uh, Kind of initially designed for the Gavin Newsom recall that's coming up. Uh, But honestly, any crappy governor you have, are you in New York? Are you in uh, Pennsylvania? Are you in Michigan? Uh, First of all, I'm sorry about that. But secondly, uh, get one of these mugs. Uh, Stu does merch. I think you'll enjoy it. Everyone in your office certainly will. 
and they'll hopefully be back there because that's what's going to happen, at least here in Texas. People are back at offices. People are back at, in restaurants. That's what's going on right now in Texas. And it's interesting to see this debate play out. I've seen a lot of people now kind of go through the data and come to their final conclusion. So let's see what the data actually shows. Let's go back to where we were back in like January. Here's the peak for Texas and you see the new case peak really rising. Now the first hump there in the graph, the graph is the summer surge. Uh, and you see the, the surge that occurred towards uh, December and January really outpaced that by a considerable margin. And Texas, the cases uh, daily every, uh, uh, every, this is the seven day average is the yellow line there. They rose and rose and rose and got to, you know, 20,000, 21,000 per day. Now, it's important to understand that that is not when Governor Abbott said we're opening 100%. Maybe you could make the case that would be Neanderthal thinking to open everything up as everything was increasing. Now, we do know that's kind of what Gavin Newsom was doing. So it's a little bit strange. He was opening up things more when cases were going up and weren't one of the highest rates California had the entire time, hence the mug, anyone else for governor. But this, this is not when Abbott made the actual announcement. Abbott made the announcement on March 3rd, and when that clip you just saw from Biden was also March 3rd. And look where we were on March 3rd. We had come down way off of the, the fall. Um, we had come off of the uh, winter surge there into, into January, and we had cratered, uh, honestly. You see kind of a dip and a rebound there, which was our big freeze. That's just a, just a data error because of tax testing, basically. But we had dropped off by, what, 75% when we're talking about cases? So after a 75% drop, that's when Governor Abbott said, hey, Let's uh, take the masks off uh, if you want. Uh, no more mandate there. 100% open for everyone. And that's where these lines sort of developed, where you have one side saying, hey, this is a catastrophe, Neanderthal thinking. The other side saying, hey, this is going to prove once and for all that lockdowns do not work. Well, we have the results in, everybody. It's been now two weeks since all these restrictions were completely lifted. And where do the numbers go? As you might expect, they continued to go down. There was no big explosion in cases here in Texas. And we have seen uh, actually a slight decrease to the lowest numbers since, uh, let's say, June of last year. So the exact opposite. Uh, of what Joe Biden said was going to happen has occurred here. The exact opposite. And you might sit back and say, well, let's go to commercial break. That's the end of the monologue, because frankly, that's what we like to do here. That's what brings us true and utter joy, okay? To watch this all play out and we can play you a dumb clip of Joe Biden and then we can tell you how wrong he was. And we, make no mistake, we are doing that today. Joe Biden, Gavin Newsom, all the people on the left said in a couple of weeks after you do this, uh, the numbers are going to go up and that has not happened. Now, there's a good argument to make that even if they were going to go through the stratosphere, might take a little bit longer than a couple of weeks. But we're seeing no evidence of that in the numbers at this point. We'll continue to watch them going forward. But there's an, there's there's more to this story today that I have to tell you. The other side of the argument says, hey, here's a sign that shows lockdowns do not work. And there, you see on the right, I think, a little bit of an overreach. Uh, 
Now, as you know, I've been telling you for months and months and months, I'm not a fan of lockdowns. I don't want them to happen. Certainly when you have testing, there's no reason that they should be happening. Um, and beyond that, there never should have been a national shutdown. There's plenty of areas that could have been open the whole time. And, and of course, some regions actually pretty much did stay open the whole time. The point, though, is that, you know, the taking this data and taking this drop and acting like you can say, well, lockdowns do not work is not correct. Why? I'll tell you why. I live here. We weren't in lockdown before. You know, let me tell you what has changed since March 3rd. OK, March 3rd, Governor Abbott makes the announcement. March 10th, we go open 100 percent. And I bet I could take a, a poll of everybody out here and ask them the question, what has changed for you in your daily life? And 99 percent of them would say nothing. This has we weren't in lockdown before. Very little has changed in life. I will say um, I went to a, a burrito place today for lunch, uh, as I tend to do because I'm a fat ass. And I did walk in there without a mask. Of course, I've already had COVID, just so you're aware. Um, there's, I would say, maybe 5%, maybe 10% less mask usage around these parts these days. On a, on a, other than that, I, I, you know, you shrug your shoulders and you say, what was the big deal? So, I, I feel like I'm on repeat sometimes, but I know you know this is true. We've talked about it 500 times. So much of the coverage of COVID-19 has been focused on the government. What is the government saying you should do? What do they say is okay? What are they telling you is the right thing to do? And so little of it, so little of what has actually happened has been based on what the government has been telling us to do. Over and over again, we have seen that the people lead the government in this country. The government does not lead the people. That's not the way this works. People went into lockdown before the government said that they had to lock down. People left lockdown before they said it was okay to leave. This is freaking America. We don't care what your mandate says. We do what we want to do. And that is what has happened. People have been actually pretty good about looking at the information, trying to understand it and adjusting their life accordingly. People who were very threatened and, and, and uh, potentially uh, vulnerable to the disease have taken far more precautions than others. This has not been perfect. We haven't known exactly what to do from the beginning. I keep hearing these people. You know, it's funny on Twitter. Everybody's right. Everybody's known everything since the very beginning. Everything that everyone said a year ago is completely right. Don't look back at those tweets from a year ago. But everybody then was exactly right. Everybody seems to have known exactly what the story was from the very beginning, if you ask them on, on Twitter. But in reality, this has been a difficult year to, to look through difficult information and try to figure out how to respond to a difficult situation. And this is why freedom is always such a freaking great answer. Because you know what? You might say to yourself, I don't want to get a vaccine. I might say it's the greatest thing of all time. You might say to yourself, I don't want to wear a mask. I might say to myself, well, you know what? I don't either because I've already had it. That person over there says, you know what? I want to protect myself. I want to protect others. I'm going to wear an N95. I'm going to wear seven N95 masks. The point is we can all do the things that we want to do and still talk about these things together because when you err on the side of freedom, you allow people to design their own lives. Yes, there are times where this can get messy around the edges. And, there, and not, we've seen way too much tragedy and way too much death that has come out of this. It sucks. It sucks. But look at this chart one more time. Look at this chart one more time after what we've been talking about. When that, that big peak there in January, 
and that huge drop of 70 and 80 percent, we weren't in lockdown for that either. Things were almost exclusively open the whole time that drop occurred. There has been something that has happened in this country over and over again where people see a flare-up of coronavirus, they react to that flare-up, and the flare-up comes down. That's kind of been what's, what's happened all around the world. It's not perfect. It's, it's, it's been a terrible, terrible time over the past year. But we have come to the position, and I've said this a hundred times to you, when we get to a point where the vaccine is available for everyone to get, which I will say in Texas is Monday, Monday, when that happens, there is no argument for any more of these restrictions. I don't, I've never been a fan of any of these mandates, as you know, but there's really no argument for them once people can get vaccinated. And that's where we are. That's where we are in our society. We are at the end of this. As long as we can continue to move forward with all of this and we don't, and something completely unforeseen does not occur, this, you know, I, I got I got news for you. April, uh, what is it? April fifth, I think it is. It's the first Rangers game here, playing against America's team, the Toronto Blue Jays, and I will be there in a stadium at one hundred percent capacity. God bless America, and God bless the Toronto Blue Jays. I'm happy to welcome to the program Dr. Deborah So. She's the author of The End of Gender, Debunking the Myths About Sex and Identity in Our Society, which is available now. Make sure to grab your copy. Deborah, thank you so much for coming on the program. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's nice to see you again. It's good to see you. Yeah, I mean, this book has been, I mean, it's made a lot of uh, news and noise. Um, people uh, have, it's been very well received. Um, it's, it's an interesting uh, concept. Tell me about the title and, and why you wrote the book. So I chose the title, The End of Gender, and I, I guess I should clarify what I mean by that because it, it has seemed to be a bit confusing for some people. So when I talk about the end of gender, what I'm referring to is the end of our ability to understand gender accurately. So some people took the title to mean that I was saying that gender doesn't exist or that it mm. has no tethering to biology or reality or that it's based solely in self-identification. That's not what I'm saying. Actually, the book is saying the complete opposite of that. What I'm saying is that science denial and diet denial of biology and activism in the sciences is really impeding our ability to understand gender and also to make meaningful decisions. I mean, some of the issues I talk about in the book pertain to young children transitioning, um, the issue of trans women in women's spaces and women's sports, and as I mentioned as well, uh, activism in academia, cancel culture, scientists being terrified to do objective research. Um, so th that's essentially what the book is about, and it seems to have made some people quite angry. <laughs> yes, that, that does seem to happen occasionally on these issues. You know, it's, it's interesting because I, a few years ago we were talking about some issue related to this, and uh, there was a clip uh, with, of Ellen DeGeneres on TV, and she was talking about the difference between sex and gender. And she said, you know, sex is what you're born, you know, with your parts and your biology when you're born with. And gender is, I believe her quote was, it's a feeling you have in your head. And I thought that was an interesting way of explaining it because it's almost like we're talking past each other here. Because that's not what I'm talking about when I'm talking about gender. Can you help us, like, define the terms of this? Because I don't think people even understand the basics. 
Right. So gender and sex are related, but they're not identical. So sex is uh, determined by gametes. So these are mature reproductive cells. So there are eggs and there are sperm. And then gender refers to, in some ways, that feeling that you have in terms of whether you identify as your birth sex or as the opposite sex if you are transgender. Or nowadays, um, some people identify as a third gender. Um, but this is influenced by biology, even for people who are transgender. Um, some people will use the terms interchangeably, even though there is a slight difference there. And in some cases, what you will see is people will say sex when what, what they mean is gender and vice versa. So now what we see with, say, trans activists, they will say that trans women are women based on their sex. But what they actually, the, what the reality is, is they identify as women based on their gender. But I think there's a, an intentional conflation there because it's activism trying to further rights for trans people, which I'm in agreement with. I just have an issue when science is being twisted to facilitate that. Um, so now there's this confusion because people are people are being told that trans women are women based on their biology, which is not true. It's, it's interesting because I, I uh, th- let me go there then. It- so someone transitions, right? Maybe they have the surgery, maybe they don't. They say they identify as the opposite gender. Uh, as a, I can understand as a, as a political observer, as a cultural observer, I can make my own sort of formulations on this. What does the science actually say is happening here? Is there, is there anything of note that science is saying, okay, this person actually is another gender? Is there anything uh, of that note that, that uh, society as a whole should be recognizing more? Well, there is um, a large body of research to document gender dysphoria as a legitimate condition, and it's a medical condition. So this feeling that someone feels more like the opposite sex than their birth sex, and they experience intense distress as a result of that. Um, And I do support transitioning in adults because research has shown that this can help some people feel better in their gender dysphoria. But even when someone transitions, they have not changed their biological sex. They've only changed essentially their, well, it's in alignment with their gender identity and it's their secondary sex characteristics. So they might change how they appear to the outside world, but they can't change their gametes. So even someone who has transitioned to female as much as I don't like to use the term biologically male because that is considered insensitive, their biology remains the same. So I don't think biology should be considered hateful. I think we should be able to speak about it factually. And from I've, many trans people reach out to me to say to me that they agree with me. And if biology didn't exist and if it wasn't real, then what would be the point of transitioning? Because there would be nothing that a trans person is transitioning from or to. So this is another myth I talk about in the book, this idea that biological sex is socially constructed or that it's a spectrum or that related to that is the idea that there are hundreds of genders or more than two. It's really interesting to hear you speak because, you know, you're talking clinically. You're talking about the science. You're talking, I think, with a lot of empathy here. Um, this is, but so often when you come out and you say these things, as you point out, people get mad. They they consider this uh, either it's hate speech or it's it's something that you're not supposed to be able to say. And we've seen you know books be torn out of Amazon and thrown off the market. This this can't, we can't possibly help people who are going through this or help the society around them if we can't discuss these things, can we? 
No, no. And I, I, I don't believe censorship is ever the solution, especially not when it comes to science or scientific research. My book is based in legitimate scientific research. I have all of the citations listed. Um, and so people have told me this has been very helpful. I, I say I never want to tell anybody what to think. So I just provide the information and I say, you, you don't go by my word. You're welcome to look it up and make up your own mind about it. But especially this larger trend, I find it quite disturbing of people being silenced, uh, our books being pulled in some cases. Um, it, it's not helpful. It's not going to help people who are being affected by these issues. And it feeds into uh, what is, in my mind, a larger trend of anti-intellectualism in that people who can't actually have an argument or they can't argue with an opinion, they simply just try to hide the information or they distort what you have to say or they censor you. Hmm. Yeah, that's, it's just not a healthy environment to be able to talk about issues that have, you know, a lot of nuance and, and, and it makes it very difficult to have those discussions. Um, you mentioned before d gender dysphoria. This is a term that I think has is so divisive at this point. I mean, it seems like if you even write the term down in an article or write it in a book, people freak out immediately. Can you kind of describe, you described what it was generally, but is it a thing that where every, does every trans person suffer from gender dysphoria or are some people trans and do not suffer from gender dysphoria? There's this growing movement now for people to identify as transgender without having gender dysphoria. So in the past, gender dysphoria, would I, I would say would be the, main reason why someone would choose to transition because they felt discomfort in their bodies mm -hmm. and to alleviate the, that discomfort they would live as the opposite sex they would undergo medical transition to help facilitate that but now what you're seeing is this growing trend of people who want to live as the opposite sex or as a third gender in some cases undergoing medical transition as well but they don't actually experience any discomfort in their body so uh, it, sometimes it's just a decision that they want to live as the opposite sex because they think their life would be easier that way. We see th this very commonly in people who are born female who don't want to live as women just because of sexism or for whatever reason, and they choose to live as a man. And, and that's I, I guess that's their right to do so. But it's this it's the activism that's underlying it and the fact that within the trans community, I mean, I'm not transgender, so I don't want to speak for trans people, but there is this tension and this fighting going on, on between people who experience gender dysphoria and those who do not, because if gender dysphoria is deemed to be something that doesn't exist, then it's going to make it much more difficult, I think, for people to get the care they deserve, because then there are no, there are no diagnostic criteria. There's no... Um, way of really quantifying how someone feels to justify why they should be able to receive treatment. I mean, I think I think where this this movement is coming from to remove gender dysphoria from, say, um, diagnostic manuals and to say it's not a mental illness is with the hope of removing stigma. And I think we can remove that stigma around mental illness without saying that something is not a mental illness or not a mental condition when it is. Because if someone is suffering and it's affecting their day-to-day -day life, it's not helpful to say, well, that's not a, med a mental condition, that, that they're just fine the way they are. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, no, it, it does. It, it, it just becomes such a difficult thing for people to, I think, to kind of get over that hump and be able to discuss because they're afraid they're going to say something the, the wrong way. And I think a lot of people have these, like, I don't know, gut feelings, to put it as a very non-scientific uh, way of saying, like, okay, well, look, there's, there's two genders. That's what there is. You talk about this in the book. Myth number three is there are more than two genders. 
I would think that, you know, at least my understanding of the way the, the woke world we're in, that is a completely untenable position to hold. Uh, but you make it with science. Can you explain? Yes. Yeah, so because there are two biological sexes and because biology influences our gender, there are also two genders because there are no intermediate gametes. So if you have eggs and you have sperm, you have nothing in between that. So where's this third gender that people speak about? Where is that coming from? So I understand to some extent because I think what, what it's being driven by is some people who don't feel like they're fully male and or female. So they'll take on a different label. And in the book, I go through an entire list of many different third gender labels that people use to identify themselves. But it's not backed in science. And I, I think it's actually quite backwards to say just because you are, say in my case, if you're a woman and you are slightly more male typical in some ways, that that means you're not really a woman or vice yeah. versa. If you're a man and you're slightly feminine in some ways that you're not a man, you should be considered this third gender. And then along with that often comes um, medical interventions like double mastectomies, testosterone. In some cases, I think it's also just people trying to show off their politics and show how progressive they are. And I say that as a liberal. Um, it, I'm really worried about what this is going to do to young kids, because especially in their development, trying on different identities is very normal. But when it comes with some interventions or decisions that may leave lasting or permanent side effects, uh, medical professionals and clinicians should be able to do their jobs. And I mean, I don't do clinical work anymore, but from the conversations I have with my colleagues, it's really impossible for them to do so now. And you get called hateful. You get called transphobic for saying that there are two genders, which I think is absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, it just feels like we crossed this line where we're just making up new rules as we go. You hit there, though, I think on this, probably the most central thing to people that I talk about. I have, you know, two kids that are pretty young. Um, and I see this world that's, that people are growing into. You, you mentioned people signaling um, their politics, which I think maybe even is more prominent occurring among parents who have young kids. If they're very progressive, they don't they, they almost seem to be encouraging their children to transition. Is that just a, you know, a, an anecdotal cultural thing I'm noticing or is there is there, is there an actual movement behind that? I do. I've seen that as well. I think it depends on the parent. I think many, there are many parents who are struggling with these issues. If they have a child with gender dysphoria who is unhappy in their birth sex and they have made the decision for that child to transition, um, they struggle with it. I think many of them are not really sure if it's the right, right path, but they're being told by medical professionals that in some cases that their child will commit suicide if they don't transition. And I talk about this in the book and I talk about how that's really not a fair um uh, reason to give parents in terms of um, why their child should transition. Um, so there's that. I think the ones that you see in the media really, I wouldn't say promoting it, but glamorizing it to some sure. extent. Sure. Those parents are not reflective of most parents who are struggling with this. And there are some parents who are very critical of it as well, but it's come to a point now where children can go outside of parental consent and, and seek these interventions if that's what they want. And, uh, you know, these organizations and even the law is is on the child's side. So it's it's actually pretty scary. Yeah, that's interesting, because I think at least my perception is I'm not in this world, but I, but but my perception of this is if you're a medical professional and you someone comes to you and says a child or even a young adult comes to you and says, you know, I want to transition. 
If you were to to push back at all, or at least make try to get them to think deeper about the ramifications of that, you're almost accused of being a hater of someone who's uh, anti-trans or transphobic. Even as a, a medical professional, is that is that is that really happening? Yeah, well, there are conversion therapy bans in 20 states in the U.S., mm. and so I don't support conversion therapy for sexual orientation because it's ineffective. So sexual orientation and gender identity are not the same thing, but they're also related. Um, but in this case, sec sexual orientation and gender identity are not the same in that sexual orientation cannot be changed, but gender identity is flexible, especially in young kids, because they aren't done developing. So again, if they feel more like the opposite sex than their birth sex, as they get older, they hit puberty, they're more likely to feel comfortable in the body they were born in. So it doesn't make sense for them to transition. But what you'll see with these laws is for mental health professionals, they they cannot question it. They have to facilitate early transitioning or they could lose their license. In some cases here in Canada, where I'm based, um, we actually have a law that's about to be passed that is going to criminalize any therapeutic interventions that do not facilitate early transitioning. So wow. a, a clinician runs the risk of going to prison for up to five years if they, they don't uh, affirm a child, which again is anti-scientific and I think it's coming from a place of, in the past, we see how harmful conversion therapy efforts have been for sexual orientation. And again, I don't support those. But I think now what has happened is activists have lumped gender identity into that. And they say, well, gender identity is the same thing. So if you say to someone who feels that they are the opposite sex or third gender, if you try to, if you tell them that they should grow to be comfortable in their body, that's harmful to them. And, and um, it's going to lead them to try and commit suicide or wow. something like that. And, and it's, it's not, it's not true. I think we can be empathic, support people who are suffering and support these children. I, I would say the most important thing to parents is just let your child do as they, as they like, if they want to, whatever clothes, toys they want to play with the fr the friends that they have, but they can do that as the sex they live as. And I say this again, I'm not a clinician, but this is what the scientific research would back. Mm. Um, one last question. I, you're, book is just jam-packed with tough answers to tough questions. So you've done a great job being able to go through all these myths. And, you know, it's, it's important that I think when someone's willing to step out and, and, and be brave and talk about these things that, that people, you know, really go through and read your book, because it's important to support people who are willing to step out and stick their neck out for this. Uh, one more uh, question before you go. Uh, there is, um, I've read that there's research that says that people who, children who have feelings of gender dysphoria early in life, um, wind up typically, if they do not transition, being happy about that, uh, being happy that they did not make that transition. Is that uh, research, is that legitimate? Is that, the, is that the, uh, the general flow of the research or is that just anecdotal? Well, statistically speaking, the vast majority of kids outgrow their dysphoria. So the statistic we have across all the research that currently exists is between 60, so 60 and 90% of children. Mm. So that is the vast majority. Um, there is a small minority who will persist. And so in that case, I would support transitioning for them. But in this climate, it's just gone so far that even those kids are not going to be able to get proper treatment. I mean, everyone, there, there's very little, if any, gatekeeping at this point. So I would still be very skeptical, even if a child reaches that point. But yeah, I mean, I get 
adults who reach out to me all the time telling me that it's actually really, um, it's a bit of a relief for me to hear from many adults, especially gay men who reach out and say to me that they actually were considering transitioning at one point, but they came across something that I wrote or they came across a, a, an interview I did years ago and they decided not to transition and now they're happy as gay adults. So um, I'm hoping that with my book and, and it reaching a larger audience that I will help other young people who might be struggling with the same thing because ultimately it's just about what's best for the individual and I don't think it should be seen as hateful to um, offer a different perspective. I mean, I think it's crazy. I look at some of the books that are available to toddlers and, and it it's aimed at toddlers about transitioning. In some cases, if we want to talk about what's going on in the category of race and critical race theory, some of those books. And I'm just appalled that those books are seen as completely acceptable for children to indoctrinate children. But a science-based book saying, let's let's slow down a bit and let's try to talk about this from a, a perspective that's not ideological. It, it's, it's just crazy to me the amount of backlash that I've received over this. <laughs> it's very true. And uh, I, there's so much more to go through. I'd love to have you back on and go through some of that because there's not only that, there's the there's the the, the women's sports issues that we're talking about now. And you go through uh, nine different myths and end it with the end of academic freedom, which is really where all of this goes. Uh, Dr. Deborah So, uh, the book is uh, The End of Gender, Debunking the Myths About Sex and Identity in Our Society. Thank you so much for taking the time to write this and, and come on the program and talk about it. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Back in a second. What I'm worried about is how un-American this whole initiative is. Oh. It's sick. It is? It's sick. Oh, he's just said that. Deciding in some states that you cannot bring water to people standing in line. What? Waiting to vote. Huh? Deciding that you're going to end voting at 5 o'clock when working people are just getting off work. Wait, what? Deciding that there will be no absentee ballots under the most rigid circumstances. Okay. This one struck me. We never got to this uh, yesterday in really any depth, but this one struck me as immediately strange. Are we really passing laws that would require people not to have water in line when they're voting? Interesting. Well, let's look at some of the claims here because I thought this was pretty interesting to go through. It's sort of tied to something, which is more than you could say for a lot of Joe Biden claims. But this is what this is what's actually happening here. There is a state in Georgia, uh, a bill in Georgia. OK, they are going to ban um, uh, giving food and water to inline voters. The Georgia House passed a bill, HB 531, for those keeping track at home. On March 1st, that prohibits any money or gifts, including but not limited to food or drink to an elector. Such giveaways will be banned within 150 feet of the building where people are voting or within any polling place or within 25 feet of any voter standing in line. A violation is considered a misdemeanor. The, the twin sort of Georgia Senate bill has similar language, except it allows self-service water from an unattended, unattended receptacle. So his case is. Republicans are trying to stop people from voting. And his evidence is a bill that says you can't give gifts to voters to entice them to vote. So in other words, you can't be like, show up and vote and get free pizza, right? They, don't, they want people to actually just go and vote, not, not to be bribed to go vote. Now, 
The bill doesn't say they can't have water. The bill actually says they can get water themselves. They just, you're not going to be delivering it to them in line. You're not going to be delivering food in line. And you can do it in other places around the voting area, just not while they're in line or while they're inside the facility. Beyond this, what person would not vote if they could not get water while in line for voting? This is not a bill that's going to stop anybody from voting. Could there be one person in the back of a long line uh, in, on a hot November day in Georgia when it's like probably beautiful uh, that might say, you know what, I'm, I, I want some water. I'm, I'm going to leave the line and then someone not hold their li- space in line, which would be weird. And then in addition to that, they decide, you know what, now I know I waited for a while and I know I have my water but uh, now I'm going to go home. Is that theoretically possible? Sure. Is it likely to turn an election? I don't think so. Um, in addition to that, he said, um, and of course, you could, they have a part of the bill that says you can get your water yourself. It's just they can't be supplying it from the voting uh, area. Um, another, uh, the, he also talked about not being able to vote past 5 p.m. It's like that would be kind of a strange uh, choice, right? Like if on election day, you can't get out of work in time, you might miss the voting. Well, of course, as you might imagine, it's not actually accurate. This is uh, this is from PolitiFact, by the way, not a right wing organization. Several proposed bills in multiple states would scale back early voting hours. So we're not talking about election day at all. Not at all. We did not find one that bumped off, cut off the election day. None of them. Not one bill that cut off Election Day voting. The White House pointed to the Georgia proposal, which sets weekday early voting hours ending at 5 p.m., although it also allowed counties to extend hours to 7 p.m. Michigan bill bans the use of absentee ballot drop boxes after 5 p.m. So again, that's just absentee ballot drop boxes after 5 p.m., and it only counts on the day before Election Day. In Texas, a proposal would limit hours during the first week of early voting till 5 p.m. However, it would go to 7 p.m. during the second week, probably because just not a lot of people are doing it. It's not, it's not as common as you might think. Arkansas has a bill that would end early voting at 4 p.m., but just on the Saturday before the election rather than the 5 p.m. the Monday before the election. In other words, this is all tweaking is not a at all something that's going to stop turn over an election or discourage that many people from voting, if any at all. Um, It seems to be more uh, housekeeping uh, than anything else. Um, Bernie Sanders has rolled out $3 trillion in tax increases. That should be more of a headline. I feel like we should have been talking about about that from the beginning of the show, but it's just something I'm throwing in towards the end because this stuff happens so often these days. $1.3 trillion over a decade by setting the corporate tax back at 35%, so we can go back to having the absolute worst rate in the world instead of having a competitive one. Um, uh, Manchin wants to bring it, I think, to 28%. Both would be bad, but obviously Sanders would be worse. Um, Another trillion dollars uh, by changing the way multinationals are taxed. And uh, another death tax which would raise supposedly $430 billion. Let me just give you the details of the death tax thing, though. This is, this is fantastic. Um, these, the death tax, also the estate tax from Bernie Sanders, would start uh, with the taxes at 40%. Then it would, or his bill would raise it to 45%. So it's now 40, it would go to 45%. However, if you have too much money, it goes up to 50%. But if you have too much money, it goes up to 55%. Eventually, it goes up and tops out at 65%. Now, we're talking really rich people there, but still, 65% tax rate when you die 
the government takes 65% of your cash. Wow, does that sound fun. We have Pete Buttigieg saying he wants to tax you by the mile. They've given up now on the gas tax thing. They want to tax you by the mile now. All of this is going to pay, supposedly, for a teensy-weensy little slice of the debt that's already been created by not only the past year of COVID, but all these fanciful spending programs going forward. Back in a second. So, I don't even know what to tell you about the story. U.S. Senator, former Massachusetts Governor Mitt Romney, was named the recipient of the John F. Kennedy Profile in Courage Award today for splitting with his party and becoming the only Republican to vote to convict former President Donald Trump during his first impeachment trial. Okay, on its face, could you say that it's a courageous act to go against your party and vote for impeachment of a president in, uh, that's a Republican. Sure, sure, you could say that on its face. But can we step back and can, do we not notice the context here? Do we not remember in 2012 when Mitt Romney was running for president and he awkwardly accepted the uh, endorsement of Donald Trump in a weird sort of groveling, awkward way? Do we not remember this? Do we not remember in 2016, after being super duper strong against Donald Trump throughout the campaign, that later on he accepted the uh, endorsement of Donald Trump for, uh, for senator? And he, he loved that. Do we not remember uh, in 2016 and 17, as he groveled at that awful table in New York while he was being insulted and laughed at by the uh, Trump administration, begging him for the secretary of state job. This is not a profile in courage. It is not at all. He had come to a point where disagreeing with Donald Trump uh, was much more on brand than doing the opposite. I don't know. Was he being courageous? That's up for you to decide, honestly. And I guess if you're a Democratic organization, you're going to see this as nonstop courage. But can we put the whole thing in freaking context here? There's not a lot of profile in courage that I'm seeing. Thanks for hanging out till the end of the show. Please click like on this video. It means you're kind of one of the cool kids if you do that. You're part of the Cool Kids Club, and we really appreciate that. And uh, if you don't mind taking a minute to do all the dumb things that every podcast asks you to do, like and uh, rate and, and, I don't know, review. It's great, whatever. I don't care. Just write something with five stars, because that is the appropriate number of stars. Also, I want to tell you we have a bunch of merch. Go check it out. StuDoesMerch.com. Great stuff on Andrew Cuomo. Uh, and then this mug has been a big seller. Even though it's a kind of a Christmas theme, I think you'll like it no matter what. It says, it's not a riot. It's a mostly peaceful tree lighting. It's totally okay for today's Antifa times. We'll get into that. And every mug always looks better with a Nancy Pelosi sucks pen right next to it. Um, okay, before we go, the latest example of things you kind of remember seeing and now you're no longer allowed to see. The WWE, which uh, all their back footage was bought by the Peacock Network, which is like the one streaming thing I don't subscribe to. 94% of my salary goes to streaming networks. And the only valid amount that you're supposed to spend on streaming, of course, Blaze TV dot com slash two. That's totally okay. 
but all other spending is crazy. Um, they are now taking out offensive parts of past like WrestleManias, including one where Roddy Roddy Piper was going against Bad News Brown and he painted his body half black. Uh, not a good not a good idea. Also, Vince McMahon, um, who was uh, he used a variation of the N word, which they can't tell me what it was, though I can guess because they only rate the N-word, so we don't actually know what it was, because they'll get canceled too if they actually type it, and then we'll all get canceled together, and then...